Welcome to the Directing Animation Livecast with Scott Weiser, who has gone from a studio of one to directing at Space Station Animation to supervising at Steamroller Animation, continuously developing over 15 feature film pitches on a quest to master the art of making deeply meaningful animated films. Today, our guest is Andrew Chessworth, a person who's become my friends throughout the years through uh, CTNX, and he has a brilliant work history. He has created some amazing, before going to Disney, some amazing hand-drawn animation, and then at Disney, he worked on Frozen and Moana and other projects. And then he broke off to do a Oscar-nominated short film. He was a co-director on that. It was One Small Step, which was a brilliant short film. And then after that, I think he worked on uh, Klaus with Spy Animation with Sergio Pablos did a lot of hand-drawn animation on that. And you just barely put out The Brave Locomotive, which has nearing 7 million views on YouTube. I guess the opening sequence had 12 million views already. So there's a lot of growth potential for that uh, that project. And it, it's it's wonderful. It's got a classic Disney feel to it. And yeah, anything else you'd like to add to that intro? No, that's great, Scott. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here today. Yeah, I, I actually often tell a story about you. <laughs> oh, really? Which yeah, one? Yeah, because so every time you would do something on One Small Step, I would hit like a milestone on my short film layers. And it would always make me feel bad because your, 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 your milestone is like, we just screened at Pixar. I'm like, I just finished the film. Or, oh. um, or I, I just got uh, entered into this festival. And you're like, I got nominated for an Oscar. And so... <laughs> We, uh, I think, I think, I think there's a, a distinction there too, though. Like one small step was my job, and we had uh, funding from uh, an entity in China that gave us the budget right. and the resources right. to pay a team and pay ourselves, and so it was like our nine to five livelihood to make sure that that short did well. Whereas you were doing it on the side, basically on by yourself, self-funded. Yeah. Yep. yep. So. Uh, so I would say uh, that you took the bigger swing there. <laughs> well, the other thing is that it also it also taught me a lot of great things to be happy for your progress, like to be excited about uh, somebody else, you know, making it. And um, that that was a really important experience. Anyway, we got chatting about it at CTNX. And I was like, yeah, I just I feel like not having that Disney title next to my name might, might impact me badly. And you're like, why don't you do a run of show contract? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and I love the idea. I thought that sounds amazing. But I, I, as I walked away from you, I just knew it was the wrong thing for me and my family. And Aww. so I remember walking around CTNX just kind of bummed. But things have turned out great, you know, in my career, even though that wasn't the path that I took. And so well, I often know, tell the story of you and and that interaction. And it was a big, it was a big moment for me in my life. And so thank you Aww. for being a part of it. I, my pleasure. I remember that conversation and I remember the look on your face when I said that, but it's interesting. The world has changed so much even since then. That was five or six years ago. And now I know Disney's hiring people that are not local. And uh -huh. I think they had to recruit some people remotely from Blue Sky and other studios yeah. to finish some of their recent projects. And I think that trajectory is only going to continue, not diminish, unless something radical changes in the marketplace, which I don't see happening. I think the world is just opening up and becoming more geographically diverse with how projects get made. Yeah, it's great. And that's great news for great. anybody watching this show. Like if that's, is that, if that's your path, go on it, you know? Yeah. That, that'd be amazing. I, I love working remotely personally. Scott and I were just talking about that right before the show, how great it has been for our lifestyles, being able to work on great projects from home. It's, it's really a transformative moment in the industry for creative people. Yeah. You probably can't say what you're working on now. I can say what I'm working on. I just okay. can't say anything about it. Okay. So after I after I finished on my dad, the bounty hunter as a character lead, which is essentially like a packeting artist and a person who gives notes on both the 3D models and the animation, uh, I was recruited to do the same thing on another animated series for Netflix, uh, and it's a Stranger Things show. And that's basically all I can say that is that it's a Stranger <laughs> Things show. <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah. And I can finally say I'm on it, Lego Fortnite and Spice Frontier yeah, with Steamroller. It's, it's great. It's yeah. it's been announced, uh, and you can see who the showrunners are on it. But yeah, we just can't say anything more other than that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I'd like to first of all show a clip of the Brave Locomotive. Uh, this oh, was great. the one that you put out that got twelve million views. And yeah, back in 
2015. Yeah. 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 It's, it's really great. I love that there's some hand-drawn animation in it. You'll see that the train is grayscale sometimes. So this isn't the complete short. You can see the complete short by going through the link that we have in the description to the channel to see the short film. But uh, yeah, let's roll that right now. To all the birds and the beasts, toot, toot, Linus is his name. I love how this hand-drawn bit, you know, you can see you didn't even have all the drawings there. There was just yeah. the expression of it. It's really great. And whenever you see the training grayscale, that was me indicating to myself that it was just a rough layout. So 3D layout without any performance animation on the train. Oh, really? Yeah. That even was, even the I, extra one that kind of falls off the mountain alone, or yeah, that was that was uh, like unfinished. It was sort of like my layout was sort of animation blocking because it involved doing uh, path curves for the train timed yeah. out properly, and then a little bit of uh, you know cog animation on the train as well to kind of match the timing of the boards. But then it still wasn't like fully fleshed out animation. So that was just my way of indicating to myself, like, you have more work to do here. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. And it looks pretty great for a layout. <laughs> yeah. And the the clip's over now. But uh, you were telling me that you released that because you didn't think you were going to finish the short film. That's right. That's yeah. right. Because I, I started conceiving the film in fall of 2008, uh, a year and a half after I graduated. And I had always wanted to do a love letter to the 1940s anthology films that Disney had made, like Melody Time, Make Mine Music, Saludos Amigos, Fun and Fancy Free, Ichabod and Mr. Toad. The list goes on from that era, but all those post-war films when they were experimenting and kind of like really flexing on their knowledge from the 1930s and kind of having fun and coming up with these new imaginative musical ideas. And so that was always a sensibility that appealed to me. And I didn't make the film to uh, say this is a proof of concept for a feature or a larger project. It was really just me saying, I love this. This is something I want to do. This is an ability that I want to um, nurture, like the style of character animation. And about a year into doing the storyboards and developing the music, I realized just how daunting the scope of the project was. Then in 2010, I kind of took some time off from it to focus on my commercial work because I got some really exciting 2D opportunities in the commercial world. Yeah. And one of them was this one minute film noir project called Palm Springs that was an opener to the Palm Springs Film Festival. And I had like five months basically paid at work to just make that thing as great as possible with total creative freedom, essentially, other than making sure the festival committee liked it. And so that was a game changer for me to, to kind of work quickly and autonomously and get paid basically for not only my execution, but also my ideas. Mm -hmm. So 2010 was a seminal year for me. And going into 2011, I really started feeling that itch. Like I want to work in feature. I want to work, you know, at a Disney or Pixar studio. And I had applied twice before, but not very like, I didn't really push the work that was on my reels when I applied in 2007 and 2009. So in 2011, I thought I've made a few more projects in the last couple of years. I want to really push this application to Disney Pixar. So in March of 2011, I sent an updated reel with Palm Springs and some of my uh, other student and recent commercial work on there. And that was the one that, that got me into Disney. And to tie this back to the Brave Locomotive, once I got into Disney, I didn't have a whole lot of fuel in the tank to to dedicate to that project because I got my dream job that I'd wanted yeah. since a kid. I was a kid. And Locomotive, there was a part of me that thought, if I make this project, Disney will notice me. But it was other work that I did that got me noticed by Disney that was not you know, specific to that 40s era of animation. Yeah. So Locomotive... Uh, over a decade ago had kind of served its original purpose already and was incomplete. And it wasn't until after I'd had a career at Disney and at Tyco and at Netflix, and then a pandemic happened that I felt this personal urge to like finish this concept that I fell in love with so long ago. So in June of 2020, I started a Patreon 
And I was making X amount of dollars each month to pay background artists and animators to finish other scenes for me while I was doing layout, editorial, rough animation, and scene planning myself. Uh, and so that they were kind of like subsidizing my completion of the film. And then two and a half years later, coming out of the pandemic, the film was done at the beginning of 2023 and starting to begin its festival journey. Yeah. Ha. Well, it's, a wild, such, it's been it's a such wild an awesome ride. story, you know, and you, we talked about, you know, the difference between like layers and one small step. You're, you're taking that big swing, you know, you've been taking yeah. it over several years, but I feel I find that's how it has to go, especially if you yeah. have a passion project that, uh, that, you know, is going to require a lot. It's going to push you way beyond what you're, what you're normally feel like you're capable of. And yeah, that's great. And I think it's important, especially if you want to be a filmmaker on top of just being a character animator or a designer, it's important to have a calling card that means something to you. Like a long time ago, the Palm Springs one minute short was kind of my calling card. And I heard from a recruiter at Disney that that was the piece on my reel that stood out and kind of tipped the scale. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't even CG. It was a hand-drawn piece, but yeah. they still felt that there was something there that added value to my CG work on my oh, reel. Oh, I feel like there was something there. In fact, I I like it more <laughs> than your CG work in a way, you know? <laughs> I do too. I Well, not to make this all about Palm Springs, but I still get told regularly by a couple of close friends that that is the best thing I've ever done. Uh -huh. And that is a high bar for me to live up to because I'm like, well, that was my job and it was for a very specific purpose. And it was a micro short where the whole point was like how much pastiche of film noir can you pack into one minute to sell this concept mm -hmm. right and, and so that's part of the fun of it and so like blowing that up to a feature it becomes a different thing right like you, you 90 minutes of just film noir parody like there has to be another element to that story to justify like why why am i getting 90 minutes of this now yeah so that that's why i look at Every project kind of has to be perfect for the format. For what it that, is. Yeah. That project was perfect for the one minute format to kind of give you a, a bite size, you know, adrenaline shot of film noir. And then Brave Locomotive, like I never saw it as a feature or a TV show. To me, it was designed explicitly to be like a short film made by Disney from the 1940s. And that's what it looks like. It's got that vibe and everything. It's, it's great. Yeah. Cause it, cause if you made it a feature, it's like, well, now the executives would probably want the characters to talk. And now they sound like every other talking car or train or boat <sighs> cartoon that you've seen before. Yeah. And it loses some of the, uh, concentration of quality that you get when you're doing yeah. a shorter project and, and the charm yeah, too. And the charm. Yeah. Yeah. Everything kind of has to, be right for the format. You know, you tell a certain kind of story for 90 minutes, a certain kind of story for a mini series, a certain kind of story for a one minute short or a six minute short. And I think uh, looking at everything from a filmmaking perspective, like the, the format has to match the material and not yeah. just the story, but like the tone and the flavor of the material. Yeah. Do people say that Palm Springs is still your best thing now that they've seen Brave Locomotive or... Uh, I would say yes. Okay. <laughs> I think but there's I, really special stuff in Brave Locomotive though. And you can see like the Klaus influence. Yeah. Like having worked on Klaus that work. And, yeah. Yeah. The, well, the opening sequence that, that first minute and a half with the, the banger Andrew's sister style number that was mostly done in 2011. Like yeah. that, that, that period where I was like, trying to apply to Disney, putting together a reel, applied to Disney, waiting for an answer. Like there was like five or six months there where like a big chunk of that sequence was done. I had like this surge of motivation and not all of it, but a big chunk of it. So if you want to see what my work looked like, you know, 12, 13 years ago, that opening sequence is, I think, representative of that. Okay. And then if you want to see what my work after Klaus looks like, not just me, but also all the colleagues that helped me. It's basically yeah. the railroad baron to the end is like 2020 to 2023. Oh, that's so, so interesting. It's, you it's do almost feel like, a little bit of a switch. Not too much, yeah, but like, a bit of a switch. Yeah. It's like you enter the train station and now we're a decade later in production. Wow. <laughs> that is crazy. It's not it's not glaring, though. So that's good. It's a the, pretty I subtle thing, it, but. One of the only shots that I did, I, I actually did it while I was at Disney just during like a break. I think between Frozen and Big Hero 6, 
like a couple weeks break as I did that shot of the vultures. Cause that was in the original animatic. And I was like, this is like a one-off shot. Maybe I'll just do like the vultures for fun. And yeah. so that one is slightly newer. And that vulture shot actually was on my Klaus uh, application reel. Cause they, they reached out to me, but they still wanted me to formally submit a reel for, you know, casting and, and familiarity purposes. Yeah. And, yeah. And uh, so I put the vultures on there. <laughs> it's probably why I got Mrs. Crumb, to be honest. I mean, oh, Palm really? Sp- yeah. Palm Springs and the vultures are probably why I got cast on Mrs. Crumb on Klaus. Because like, oh, it's kind of a spooky, angular, you know, <laughs> edgy kind of character. <laughs> oh, that's fascinating. Interesting. And then uh, one thing that um, should be noted is these Patreons, they're they are not a joke, right? They're, they're hard to do. They're hard to set up. Um, crowdfunding yeah. is what uh, it is. Easier yeah, logistically than Kickstarter. So yeah, definitely. for anyone anyone listening who's familiar with uh, the very successful independent animator, Vivian Madrano, she's responsible for Hasbin Hotel, Hell of a Boss, and now the Hasbin Hotel series for uh, A24. They, uh, sorry, she um, consulted with me when I reached out to her, like, how should I do this independently? Like Indiegogo, Kickstarter, Patreon, and she was like, well, this is a very specific kind of project where like the goal is to like to be a one-off high quality execution. And so it, it's one thing to like do a pilot and find like a more limited production scope and then scale it up. But for you, it's about finishing this thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you do Kickstarter, you're basically going to be spending a lot of your time as a like merchandise coordinator a fulfillment and, and, yeah <laughs> yeah ful- fulfill- fulfillment and marketing exactly yeah and you might not be spending the time that you personally want to spend on the craft and she's like if you do patreon it'll take you longer you might not make enough make as much money in like a net capacity mm-hmm. but you might be able to work at a pace that suits you and you can monetize visibility into the process over fulfillment and that is brilliant yeah i've done four personal kickstarters and then helped with over 50 um yeah in in entrepreneurial capacities but yeah the one that didn't fund was layers and i was so glad (laughs) because i started to realize like look at what i owe all these people you know like this is going to take so much time and i just want to finish a film and uh, yeah it was kind of nice that that thing failed and it didn't fail spectacularly like we raised a good amount of money. We just didn't hit the $54,000 that I felt like I needed. Um, but then I got a grant and I had some business funds of my own business that I could put into it. And it became a bit of a calling card for my freelance work. So yeah, yeah, that's, that's the best route is what it sounds like is a Patreon. And then you can keep people, keep people involved in the process of the development, which is, yeah. And the, the the higher tiers of payment yielded higher, uh, amounts of, transparency into our process so if you wanted spoilers you could pay for them and because i because the film was a short and not a feature and it was following a very specific template from the 1940s in terms of like the storytelling flavor i wasn't as scared about leaks i mean i didn't want leaks but i i wasn't like oh my gosh i'm gonna spoil my hundred million dollar movie if somebody leaks something it was more yeah this is a passion project there's already a minute and a half of it on YouTube that got people excited in the first place. So I want this to be about the joy of making something and watching somebody and a small team make something. And that ended up being the right route for this project. It's not going to be the right route for every project, but it was the right route for this one. Yeah. And I think that's that's another thing to kind of be conscious of as a filmmaker is like, who's your audience? What are they interested in about it? Are they interested in the craft? Are they interested in like, you know, the intriguing, mysterious plot that they don't want to have spoiled. Like, is it more for kids, more for adults? I saw this as like for families and kids and maybe people who are getting into animation and want to watch something ambitious get made at a high level in an independent capacity. Like, I thought there was a lot of draw for this particular model that could support it. And it was easy to advertise the Patreon because I already had a big following on YouTube. I had a decent following on Instagram and Twitter. And I thought the project has enough of a interesting draw to it based on the craft that it might attract enough followers to justify that monthly spend on backgrounds and animation assistance. And I was telling Scott again before the call, however much I was bringing in in a given month is how much I was paying out in that yeah. month. So if I made 
$1,000 a month, I could afford a few backgrounds that month. Or if I made like $2,000 a month, kind of over 2000 at the peak, I think less than a year into the Patreon, then that was like, okay, I can do like several seconds of animation and a few backgrounds. And so you, you, you kind of started seeing an aggregation of speed as it was picking up followers. And yeah. then it kind of did reach an apex uh, where like a lot of the animation was done and then interesting new pencil tests kind of slowed down on the Patreon. And so followers would kind of drop out, but then it was still enough to cover the rest of the backgrounds and the music. So there was kind of like this arc to the income on the Patreon over time that uh, ended up being perfect for like the scope of work that was needed. Cause like the more you're producing, the more interesting things there are to like pay for and like peek into, you know, yeah. and then as more gets done, there's like less stuff to look at. So <laughs> yeah, it slows down again. It, and it, it, it was, it was just right. Like I, I have no complaints about it. And also the highest tier uh, which was 200 a month. Mm -hmm. That was for like 15 minutes of a weekly animation mentorship. So I had three or four animation students uh, engaging in that. And then one friend who just wanted to pay me 200 a month, but wasn't an animation student. <laughs> That's like, funny. I was like, I feel like I owe you something. Yeah. And they were like, no, no, no. I just want to support you. Uh, so it was like, okay, well, I'm getting paid for five students, but I'm only mentoring four people. So that's that's nice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it, you never that's know cool. kind of who's, you never know who's going to be interested in supporting you and, and for what reason, but you as long as, yeah. as long as they're getting fulfillment out of their end of it, like that's all that matters. If people weren't getting something out of it, they wouldn't support you. And so yeah. if people aren't following your Patreon, it's, it's probably, they need to be offered a little bit more interesting things to look at. Or, or maybe you need to adjust your pricing, but yeah, or, or just market your project a little bit more on social media. But yeah, th there's all these different factors that play into how you can support an independent project. Yeah. And one of those students, Michael Vanderhoven, who we talked about, uh, yeah. he, he worked on the short too. He so, did. Yeah. He did, he did a couple of shots. Uh, he was an animation student of mine before I launched the Patreon. Yeah. Then when I launched it, I was, you know, having conversations with a handful of 2D and 3D animators, most of whom worked with me on Klaus, including one 3D animator who did like the, the horse and carriages and other 3D elements of Klaus. But uh, yeah, Michael was one of my students who joined me on this and he did two shots of Linus uh, leading into that climax before the bridge falls apart. Mm -hmm. Linus, Linus up on the mountain looking sad before the, <laughs> uh, the, the, the before the big finale. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. I love that. I love that friend that just gave you two hundred dollars. That's that's amazing. I <laughs> I had something up with that. So there's somebody I pitched. I pitched Vanishing Ink at their studio, and I had no idea that on Cirque du Solitude they would donate a big sum, and then on Mass Magic they donated like it's a husband and wife, but they donated a. Uh, fifteen hundred dollars to it or something like wow. that wow and it was for the like the special other visit and i'm like do you really want me to come and they said we'll let you know and they never had me come visit <laughs> so <laughs> which is very interesting it was just to support the project which was just amazing you know one and of the one of that's that that is amazing yeah one, one of one of the things that i think was another bread and butter uh, uh topic on the patreon was i would show recording sessions of the music because all the music in the film is analog mm -hmm. we recorded all like real instruments and real, real performance yeah. and so awesome. we we always had because we recorded it in bits and then layered them on top of the original track because the original track was just the three singers the piano the bass and the drums so all like the accordion harp banjo fiddle all that stuff was separate things layered in later so it sounds like they're all in the same room together but they were all recording separately so i always had like a new track to kind of play or or show at least photographs or images of those sessions and uh, i think it was really help like really illustrative of like what the process was making this film yeah that's great i i'm also thinking about this idea of um the contrast between your commercial work and then your more, uh, your more personal work, right? Uh, do you get a lot of people coming to you and saying, you know, oh, I wish I could do the kind of stuff on the side you're doing? Um, and <laughs> yeah, but but I don't know if they know what goes into it though. And I think also yeah. there was a very, I also think for Brave Locomotive and and 
I'm not ashamed to admit it. I think there was like a very peculiar obsession with like this specific era and style of animation that that drove me. Uh, it's like a flavor of ice cream I was addicted to and always in the mood to eat. Right. <laughs> like like even though nobody is doing this style of animation in the mainstream anymore, like the big Disney productions, it's like it's like, oh, it's like a flavor of ice cream that they don't make anymore. But when you eat it, it's great. Yeah. You know, and it, like that's kind of how I felt every time I opened up, you know, TV paint to animate on this short. <laughs> it's like I just like I like being in this vibe in this yeah. world, the music, the animation. So if you're doing a passion project on the side, I would strongly advise that whatever it is, whether it's funny or serious or, you know, cartoony or, or realistic it it has to be a form of comfort food for you so that even though there is an element of labor and work to it it feels like an escape from mm -hmm. whatever you're being paid to do or, or doing most of the time yeah so that that's what this project was for me and that's why it is the way it is yeah and that's how i think it it endured for me on the sidelines you know, at the beginning and end of a 15 year timeline. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I used to say 15 years in the making, but like kind of two at the front and two and a half at the back. Yeah. So if you were to put those contiguous, you know, months of working on the film together, it would probably amount to like four and a half, five years. Yeah. And then you'd probably have to do a new calculation for how much time is taken by the, the full time. Like yeah. The, the yeah. Cause even work. if you put, even if you put those five years together where I was actively working on it, it was never full time. Yeah. So you could even slice that again in half and say, if Andrew was working on this nonstop full time, it would probably be like two to three years, you know? Yeah. <laughs> With, yeah. Uh, unless the crew was bigger. And then yeah, it gets yeah. More that's, expensive. that's why it takes so long because you need yeah. a bigger crew to, to carry the load of all that animation. It does such a high quality too. Yeah. It was like, if so. I could, if I did the whole film myself, just completely myself, except for the music, like I would be like, okay, just three to four years of Disney salary. And that's all I do, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I love, I love how you said your answer to that question about people coming up to you and saying, oh, I wish I could do this thing on the side too, was, you know, they don't know what goes into it. And and that's kind of often, I often quote, quote Martin Scorsese in his masterclass where he's like, if you think it would be fun to be a director, this course is not for you. <laughs> and then he says, yeah, if, if you can't, if you can't help but make a film and like you have to do this thing, then this course is maybe for you, right? Yeah. And, and I, I, I tell people like, it's okay if you're an animator at your day job and that's what you do. You don't have to think that you have to do more than that. Yes. If what you really enjoy is just animating a a shot or a, a test on not, what do you call them? In, in video games, we don't call them tests. We call them uh, cycles or uh, emotes oh, yeah, yeah. or anything like that. Yeah, so... Yeah. I well, it's kind of like not every actor wants to be a director. You know, you yeah. think of like, you know, there, there's there's famous movie stars like George Clooney who become directors, and there's famous movie stars like Cary Grant who just like being the leading man for yeah. for decades and decades. And I I think if you're an animator and you feel like, should I want to be a director? Do I do I want to be a director? Like, it's almost not even a question. Like for me. For me, like if I had enough money, I would just sit at home and make films until my life is over. Same. <laughs> like, that's because that's what that's what I, well, I I enjoy the feeling of like putting on a little show, you know, mm -hmm. like the, the idea here is like, oh, I'm going to do this film noir homage. Or I'm going to do this homage to like 1940s Disney or I'm going to tell this animated story with no dialogue and just music. And it's kind of like like a 90s, I'm talking about One Small Step now, like a 90s family drama meets like old pantomime Disney. And so like One Small Step was deliberately designed to feel contemporary and old fashioned at the same time. Mm -hmm. And like, so just that exercise alone, knowing that it's supposed to feel new and vintage, like it, it informs your choices and it's an interesting puzzle to solve. And when you're a director, it's nothing but solving puzzles all the time. Yeah. Puzzle puzzles of like human interaction. Like how do I motivate this team and keep them invested and excited and feeling like they're getting something out of this experience on this collaboration. And also the puzzles of story and the puzzles of scope and shot design and what's the right way to communicate this scene. And uh, one of my favorite anecdotes about slimming down the brave locomotive for the 2020 onward era of completion 
was I cut out like two whole sequences that I didn't need. And there was already music scored for it. Oh, One of the sequences I just cut completely because I didn't need it. It was showing the the building of the bridge before we suddenly reveal it in the Samson sequence in the middle of the film. It was like, well, time has passed. We can assume that this was built to accommodate Samson. And then the other sequence that was cut was kind of this World's Fair where you see the Baron's daughter and the Baron and Henry kind of showcasing Samson for like all these, you know, press people in bowler hats. And then Katrina, the daughter, she breaks a wine glass on Samson like he's the Titanic. And then they climb aboard and he zooms away. And it was like, but we already saw this. Like we already saw Samson like building the town and doing all this stuff. So why do I need to show it again? And so I just turned that whole sequence into just like a newspaper, like a spinning newspaper with one image and headline as like, just to show that like, yep, the whole world knows that he's like a big deal now. (laughs) That was it. So you can sometimes just take one image and substitute an entire sequence and tell the same story. So it's kind of like, where do you want to spend your money for spectacle and, and character performance and audience investment? And I would say that lesson was one that I learned from one small step in terms of like how to like allocate properly for certain moments in the film. Because yeah. in one small step, there was an early se- an early cut where the whole film felt like a montage just from end to end. And you never had these breaks where it felt like you had like um, – like back-to-back shots that were all happening in real time where you, you're like in the moment with the character. Because mm-hmm. even though you could compare it to Up, that montage is a great, you know, it's like a nine-minute montage. So they mm-hmm. have more time and it still lives within the body of a larger film that has real-time scenes that play out before and after. So so for for one small step, it became how do we keep the benefits of a montage, fit it into seven minutes or less, and still have real-time moments where you get invested in the characters. So we ended up squeezing and compressing some story beats into like one shot so that we could have like the playtime with the the young girl and the father for like a minute and a half. And then other scenes later when she's grieving for him or 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 like learning that she got accepted into the um uh the the space academy. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so going through that experience on one small step and allocating story business properly for maximum audience investment, like applying that to locomotive was great. Cause it was like, okay, this whole, you know, world's fair thing that can just be a newspaper. Cause I want to spend my money on the real time adventure and suspense of this bridge sequence where we're in the moment with the characters and it's life or death. And I want to spend more there and less on just the exposition stuff that, isn't as interesting or, or emotionally engaging. Yeah. That's a really good point. <laughs> so uh, let's talk a little bit about Amy Lewis. Um, yeah. I knew her like through Chris Oatley uh, years ago as she was just trying to break in. And it was really cool to see her getting all this experience with you. And I think she was working on SpongeBob with yeah. Nickelodeon and other things. Her SpongeBob stuff is perfect. Yeah. Just perfect. I had, I had lunch with Amy just a couple of days ago. She's oh, in yeah? LA this week. And oh, nice. Yeah. For, uh, I think, a, a rap event on a SpongeBob project she worked on. Okay. But but yeah, uh, she actually ended up being my second art director on the project, specifically background art director. My first art director was a student of mine back in 2011 named uh, Ali Strom, who okay. works, I believe, at Riot now. Okay. But she was in my storyboarding class, and she just demonstrated this immaculate painting ability so most of the backgrounds in the opening sequence and the uh, intro to the baron when he starts singing in the railroad station those are mostly allison's paintings and then you know a decade later when i started the patreon uh allison wasn't available and i was interested in another background art director to do the remaining you know two-thirds three-quarters of the film and I connected with Amy on Instagram because she had done this beautiful plein air of a train going through a field. And it had these warm, rich, vibrant colors. Uh, and there was a classical feel to it, but also a very contemporary knowledge of painting. And uh, there was an adaptability to her work that I noticed in her portfolio. So I thought she can probably pick up the rules of this thing and run with it. And sure enough, she did. And so after a couple of backgrounds, 
I asked her, do you want to be my background art director and kind of help steer the other background freelancers on the show? And she took that bull by the horns and just ran with it. So she, she really owns, I think the, the quality and consistency of the backgrounds for, you know, the, the last five minutes of the film, essentially. (laughs) That's really great. It's funny. You just, you discovered her and and it worked. It just worked. Yeah. I I didn't reach out to her right away and say, I want you to be art director, but I saw something there that if the relationship worked, it it could, it could could, possibly become, it could. Yeah. If, if she was, you know, on board with the project, um, (laughs) like she painted a train, so she's not averse to trains as subject matter. Uh, and then on top of it, she's got versatility of style and she, she had a nice way of talking about her work online that, that I was drawn to as well. Um, and, that that seemed to lend itself to our remote way of working because our whole team was connected over Slack and email. And so having Slack channels for the character animators and the background artists was really helpful for artists to speak among each other mm-hmm. about the project and not having everything go through me. Cause I didn't have a producer. I didn't have a coordinator. Like I was the pr- the prod team and the creative leadership. So having the artists be able to talk to each other was really helpful. Uh, And having somebody like Amy, who was a designated lead art director was also helpful. Like there was always somebody who understood the rules of the project that people could talk to. Yeah, that's great. And then even on the music side, I mean, Tom was basically the music producer. He recruited all the the singers and all the uh, instrumentalists and arranged all the sessions. And all, all I had to do was kind of give him my basic direction and feedback and, and compensation to kind of make sure every, everyone was paid. And, and he, I, I, my involvement with music was very hands-off except for just communication and needs for the film. So yeah. that was really, really great. You reminded me of the Boogie Woogie Boogle Boy. <laughs> <That song. laughs> yeah. Boogie Woogie Boogle Boy was the Andrew sister's song that we benchmarked for that opener. Yeah. Like in my very first conversation with Tom back in 2008, we watched Little Toot, the Disney short, uh-huh. and we watched Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy. And we're like, this is the flavor, except it's, you know, about a happy little train in his golden age before his whole world gets, you know, turned obsolete. <laughs> yeah. I also love so, how you told me before the show that uh, you you didn't think this would appeal to Thomas the Train fans, and yet you have this big yeah. part of the fan base of the film that love Thomas. That's right. It, I mean, it gets it gets understandably compared to because it's a it's a happy little blue train that's very mm-hmm. family friendly. But m- my comparisons when I was developing it were explicitly Little Toot, Casey Jr. from Dumbo, The Brave Engineer, the Disney short about Casey Jones. Um, Susie, the little blue coop, the Bill Pete cartoon about a, a, a car who also becomes obsolete and finds a second life. Um, it was Disney films, basically, that I wanted this to feel like. And I picked trains as a subject matter because that felt Disney. And as a kid, I loved trains. And when I was very little, I loved Thomas the Tank Engine. But I, I just kind of generically liked trains uh, and Disney. And so the fact that this film has really reached a lot of Thomas fans, it's it's charming to me and it it, yeah. it tickles me because it, it's like, oh, you you don't always anticipate like how the audience is going to receive your work. You can have an idea about it, but even though my intention was like Disney trains and Disney from the 40s, it still kind of reached um that other that other crowd. It ha- it also has a lot of just traditional rail fans like model train enthusiasts or people who have worked on the railroad or still work on the railroad. I've gotten emails and comments from people where like it's their livelihood or their hobby. And this um, appealed to them uh, because it's a piece of train media and you don't see steam engines getting the spotlight in media all that much because they're so old. Yeah. (laughs) It's like cars and planes and machines that are still kind of relevant to kids in day-to-day life, but steam engines are antiquated. Like you don't see them unless you make a trip to a museum or a special, you know, park. But um, it's funny how like, you know, I have a two-year-old son and the books featuring trucks and cars and planes and boats, they all look like the way those things look now. 
but then it's like and here's a train and it's like a steam engine from like the late 1800s <laughs> and you're like this is still the idea of what a train is to kids because you know those re- electric rectangles we see going through the city are boring like they don't They're have any beautiful yeah yeah it's just a box sliding along a track but steam engines have character you can see how it works and kids can imagine you know the hot embers heating up the water and you know boiling the steam and making the pistons chug and like kids can imagine the 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 kinetic appeal of that and i think that's why steam engines are still so attractive to kids even though they're completely obsolete <laughs> yeah you got to love that though that's, that's really yeah. cool yeah so when it comes to your commercial work um because we talked about the opposite, like the benefits of having your passion project. What's the benefits like of the commercial work for you to kind of balance oh, yeah. out the passion, I guess. <laughs> you mean like the, the, the animation studio, like Disney kind of yeah, commercial your, your work on my dad, the bounty hunter. And, Oh, I, I think that's where you learn. I mean, you learn how to be a diligent professional accountable for compromising on, um, you know, how much can I do in the given amount of time I had, I have for this task and what does the show really need out of this task so I can focus my energy on it appropriately and not, you know, spend forever on it. Oh yeah. Uh, Collaborating with people, understanding everyone's different perspective and need, understanding like the roles of a show, like what, what do my production coordinators need and what are the concerns of the producer? What are the concerns of the executive producer or the showrunner? I, I think it's just commercial work helps you build empathy for a lot of roles that you don't fulfill yourself. Mm-hmm. So that if you do do something all by yourself or with a small team, you have a better understanding of those roles, having worked in a larger team. And also, I mean, animation is very expensive and very difficult to monetize because it's so time consuming and not to get into a larger discussion about that, but the big studios are kind of how the animation industry makes money still, because it, like I said, it's so time consuming and it's very dependent on subscriptions to Netflix or Disney plus or movie theater tickets or cable subscriptions. And that's about it. Right. Yeah. Like, so that's, that's where money in the animation industry basically comes from. So these projects are very specifically designed to, make sure that they make their money back because they cost hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars. And, and it's mostly due to the time and value of the people involved, right? Yep. Like it takes so many people to make them and they all need decent salaries. So the, the, the shows just become ridiculously expensive really quickly. And uh, so I think it's good to understand that and how our roles fit into that larger economic dynamic. You know, there, I was listening to a panel with YouTube animators recently YouTube animators basically make their money from AdSense, which is like kind of the lower tier of income, mostly. Then they get uh, sponsors. So you'll be watching something and there's like a sponsored product at the beginning or end of the video, or maybe a sponsored thing in the caption of the video, or the creators will have merchandise that they promote to kind of subsidize their ad revenue. But YouTube animators have to work in a very simple, cost-effective, limited animation style to generate the storytelling content that appeals to their viewers. And so making a film like Brave Locomotive at like a full Disney feature quality for YouTube on a regular basis is not tenable. Not yet, right? Maybe it never will be, but... But I think it's important to understand like the cost income ratio to any model that you're interested in pursuing because I was not interested in locomotive as like a for-profit studio endeavor. I could take my time on it and, and my time was my value. Like I was spending more of my time than my money. So that's why on paper, it's not particularly expensive but because it took a long time and I needed the Patreon to support the other people helping me, it still ended up being expensive, but it was nice to have Patreon be the reason to spend money on it. So and you're able all to that nurture is just, future artists and yeah, you're able to nurture future yeah. artists. Yeah. And yeah. And it's not like a dying of exposure situation. It's more of a, like you are getting paid a little bit, but because maybe you haven't had, this level of job yet this is still an opportunity to show what you can do on a smaller scale and then get noticed for bigger projects um all right 
without working for free. Yeah. Uh, I, I think um, to take it back to your question of like, how does the studio work benefit your personal work? It, it's just, it's, it's all of those things, right? It's just becoming a better, more self-accountable professional and having additional calling cards, right? Uh, a, a veteran Disney animator once said to me, like the hit projects become your, your armor during the low points in your career you know like the industry has its ups and downs you know for every beauty and the beast that you work on there will be an era of unemployment right where suddenly it's like i don't get it i worked on beauty and the beast and right now i can't find work and i think everyone in this career will have a moment like that eventually Mm -hmm. and but having worked on like a beauty and the beast or a frozen or a klaus whatever it might be that kind of becomes your armor to get you to the next thing after like a, a dry spell. And so I, I think working on great projects is is important for that because it becomes a part of your personal career narrative. And for better or worse, like people who don't know us and are looking to hire us or work with us, they kind of seek out the bullet point narrative of who we are as a professional. And so anything you can do to kind of increase the the real estate value of those bullet points is helpful, especially down the road when you want to maybe invest more in personal endeavors over larger studio endeavors. Mm-hmm. That's great. Great advice. <laughs> great thoughts. <laughs> uh, last question that I always ask is uh, the get wiser moment, which is if my goal is to get the highest potency of truth into a story, what approach would you recommend? Oh, the highest potency of truth. I mean, I think maybe the simple answer is just like be honest and authentic with what you want to say and why you want to say it. Um, like with Brave Locomotive, I never had any any like misconceptions about like the fact that this was simply a love letter to many of my favorite things, right? Classic Disney, musicals, old-fashioned trains, and like a style of animating that's no longer in fashion. Uh, and so that's that's what it is, and that's why it is the way it is. And I also wanted it to be faithful to like the realities of the march of time, and things do become obsolete, but it doesn't mean we have to fall out of love with them or not keep them in our lives somehow, right? Like in the world of the film, you know, diesel trains and airplanes and modern technology took over, but this engineer and his wife, they still ran this kind of vintage railroad because that's what they were passionate about. And so that was sort of like a microcosm of my passion for old fashioned animation in the modern world using modern tools. Yeah. And I think for, for one small step, it was about, you know, I didn't share the, the, um, the heritage of the characters that I was depicting, you know, my producer was Chinese American. My co-director was Filipino American. Both of them grew up in single family households so there was an opportunity for me to listen and and properly help depict their life experiences. But one thing we all shared in common was we all had parental figures who supported us unconditionally. And we realized how fortunate all of us were to have that. And that's why we are the way we are. And the film kind of went out of its way to celebrate having those people in your life because that's often how we're able to reach the dreams that we aspire to. So even though it's a film about an immigrant girl who wants to become an astronaut, you know, Bobby and I were American boys who wanted to become animators, but we were looking for analogs in that life experience to kind of tell this metaphorical story of reaching for the stars. So I think finding the truth in your work is just listening to your own life experience and the life experiences of others and not superimposing some kind of like abstract cartoon logic on top of it that pulls away from the, the truth. Oh yeah. Right. Like even if you're doing a steampunk wacky world (laughs) for your film and the characters dress funny and have funny machines that they interact with, you have to find the core. Like is my steampunk story about, a father and daughter? And if so, why is this like my life or the life of somebody that I know? I think I think young storytellers and young animators often get caught up in the abstract genre appeal of the concept that they want to engage with, and they forget that they still have to be characters. 
And another thing I, I changed about Brave Locomotive to make it more like my own life was I made Henry a married man because when I revisited the film, I was a married man. Before, he was just an engineer who lost his train and had to move on. But I wanted to show that he had like a life at home that he was responsible for, even though his job was essentially terminated and, and redirected. Yeah. So because that's that's real. Right. Even it's though it's true. this cartoon. Yeah. Even though it's this cartoon with like a happy train with a face, his engineer loved that period of working together and then felt the pressure to move on and, and adapt. And and that's it's uh, it's it's understated and it's real and it's not, you know, trying to be something that feels inauthentic, I guess. Yeah. Right. After he, Steven Spielberg made Close Encounters of the Third Time, he realized or Third Kind. He realized that he had put the wrong ending in there because he hadn't had the experience of being, you know, a husband and, and father uh, yeah. yet. And so when he had that that uh, man leave his family, you know, that was that was the wrong ending because there was there it lacked the truth of who that character was and and all of that. And uh, I think it's that really his... cool to to know that you know that to have him <laughs> see that and say, hey, I should have corrected that, but you know. Well, He's everything got a new film is, to make. <laughs> so yeah, every, everything is a product of their time and who we are at the time that we make it. And yeah. I think the the one of the for for me personally, maybe not for the audience, but for me personally, the most fascinating thing about Brave Locomotive, looking back on it, is that opening sequence when those characters are in their prime, in their golden years, just loving every minute. It's the the biggest, boldest, most kind of explosive animation. Because I was young when I animated it and the characters are in their prime. And then as soon as he enters the train station and the Baron kind of changes their lives and makes them obsolete, the film, the film becomes a little more deliberate. The animation becomes a little more direct and the, um, the life experiences of the characters better reflect how I feel coming back to it in my thirties versus my twenties. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's really cool. I love that. Well, uh, We've got to end the show because it's time's up. Is there anything you'd like people to follow for you, your Patreon? and uh, Yeah, you can follow me Instagram. on Patreon. Right right now the Patreon is a little more low-key because I'm yeah. doing behind-the-scenes uh, video essays for YouTube uh, and just some like small associated costs with that. Uh, and then I'm uh, doing some prototype merchandise, uh, a train plushie, and then wooden standardized wooden railroad trains because I've gotten a lot of requests from parents for for both of those. Okay, um, those are a little bit less expensive to produce, and so I'm going to see how those how those go. But those are the toys that I want. <laughs> I want the wooden train versions that my son can play with. Um, so yeah, if you're supporting the Patreon now, you're supporting some prototype merchandise and behind the scenes video material for the YouTube channel and uh, an art book that should be available by the time CTN and Lightbox come at the end of the year. That's sort of something I'm doing for the crew because the crew really wanted there to be an art book and I do too. And so to, to make it happen, I needed to keep the Patreon going a little bit longer. Okay. Um, and uh, then if you want to follow my YouTube channel, I'm a Chesworth on YouTube and Andrew underscore Chesworth on Instagram and a underscore Chesworth on Twitter. And uh, I just started a TikTok today because I had some people saying, you should post some clips of making the film on TikTok. So now I'm Andrew underscore Chesworth on TikTok with no posts yet. Oh, great. <laughs> but I will soon. There will be Coming posts. Coming soon. Yeah. Coming soon. Yeah. Uh, YouTube is probably the the most relevant place to follow me for specifically the Brave Locomotive right now, if that's what you're interested in. That's great. Okay. Well, thanks for being on the show. And until next time, I hope we all get a little wiser. Thank you for watching the Directing Animation Livecast, hosted by Scott Weiser, audio version edited by Kira Horowitz, copyright Scott Weiser LLC 2024. Don't forget to subscribe and ring that notification bell.